Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. James Carafano is a vice president at the Heritage Foundation and a leading Republican foreign policy mind. We caught up with him at the AJC Global Forum at the beginning of June. Let's listen in to that conversation now. James, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good to be with you. Um, you are an expert on many things, but among them, Homeland Security. Uh, can you give us um, a perspective from 10,000 feet? What are the Homeland Security threats that America yeah, so faces I, today? I've been doing this for about 16 years. I started at the Heritage Foundation as a Homeland Security analyst. Um, you know, Homeland Security was really started, the, the impetus really was transnational terrorism. From that perspective, I think we've made remarkable progress. We are much safer today than we were on 9-11. By our estimate, we have a database on this. We've had over 100 Islamist-related terror attacks aimed at the American homeland since 9-11. And the overwhelming number of them have been thwarted. And some of them were actually would have been quite serious and quite devastating if they actually happened. So as much as we make fun of everything with Homeland Security, from TSA agents to whatever, America has done a better job of protecting itself from those kinds of threats. Homeland security goes hand in hand with the concept of foreign policy, right? If we're going to defend the homeland, we need to exercise strength abroad. Is that generally sound? Is that- Absolutely. I mean, when we looked at the national security strategy, we looked at it from the perspective of what do we see as vital interests, and we've always identified three. The core one being defending the homeland, because if your homeland is not secure, um, then then you've kind of failed your obligations as a state. Uh, but you know, conversely, when your base is solid, it allows you to go forth in the world and do the things that are important to you. So the United States is a global power with global interests. We have global responsibilities. So we either have to be able to get there or be forward present to protect them. And what really links us to the world is the stability in Europe, in the Middle East, and the Indo-Pacific. So because our homeland is secure, we can spend a lot more time uh, focusing on dealing with threats, external threats, before they come to our shores. Pundits talk a lot about how President Trump has a particularly unorthodox foreign policy. Before I move forward with that assumption, do you agree with that? So he has an unorthodox style. His statecraft is incredibly unconventional. But I actually think if you actually look at the core strategy, if you separate the rhetoric from the policy, that much of his core strategy would fit in what I would say is kind of a traditional Republican framework. I'm not a Republican. I actually not belong to a political party. But if you think of Reagan-esque policy in terms of peace through strength, um, not looking for wars, uh, willing to defend your interests, uh, skeptical of international institutions, but on the other hand, not abjuring, not pushing away from them. Um, I, I think he fits in well with you know everybody from Eisenhower to Reagan. And and so in that paradigm, were the Bush years and neoconservatism was was that more of a departure then? Well, here's how I would. You said, I noticed you said through Reagan. Well, yeah, here, here's how I would explain it. If the Trump guys were explaining foreign policy, not that they've ever used these words, but having been around them a long time, is what, what they would argue is that the, the problem in the Bush years is that, that foreign policy was overly muscular, regardless of what we thought our foreign policy was going to be. After 9-11, you know, we, we stood back and said, well, this is intolerable. How can people come to our soil and kill us in these numbers? We have to go out and solve these problems. And so the Bush foreign policy was very muscular, very aggressive in a sense of trying to go out and solve all the big problems in the world that faced America. And and the argument was, well, that was overly aggressive, right? That, that you created as many problems as you solved. And that was actually a critique that was shared by the Obama administration. I would, I would say 
But where they departed, they said, well, Obama, the problem is, is his answer was to do the opposite. Rather than going out and solving the world's problems, uh, Obama essentially ran away from them. And mm. that created gaps or caricatures maybe, but this is how they would describe it. Gaps and spaces that the enemy filled in. And they said, we're really going to be the guys in between. We're not going to try to solve the world's problems, but we're not going to walk away from defending our interests. Uh, and so I think they see themselves as a middle ground between an Obama and a, and a Bush. And, and so if President Obama's often maligned organizing principle was don't do stupid stuff, well, what, would you, what would you coin as an organizing principle for, uh, for President Trump's foreign policy? Yeah, well, you know, I think every president's organizing mantra is don't do stupid stuff. <laughs> I, I, don't, I can't remember one that said, no, let's, let's go do really, <laughs> really dangerous things that are going to get us all killed. Um, you know, when the president said America first, uh, I, I think that was, you know, after the first time he used that in a speech, I was actually in a meeting with the president, with the candidate and a bunch of advisors. And I didn't want to say anything, but afterwards I kind of walked over to the corner and a few from there and I go, hey, you guys know where America first comes from, right? <laughs> and they go, and they say, kind of paraphrase them, they said, yeah, but first of all, um, none of our voters know who Lindbergh is. And the other thing is, is that's not what we're saying. We don't care. Um, you know, when he says America first, it's my job is to protect America's um, interest. And I think how he operationalizes that is by we will be forward, present in the part of the world where our interests are challenged, and we will demonstrate the willingness to protect that. So I think that fairly well defines virtually every major competition that the United States uh, faces. You know, what's really interesting is, is if you look at Obama, Bush, and Trump, they have the same bad boy list, right? Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, transnational Islamist terrorism. They have the same list. Now, they had different ways of, of dealing with that, but they all recognize that these are major threats in the world. Uh, and uh, you know, I think Trump's notion is, is you know, we're not going to purge the world of evil, but we're going to keep the evil, you know, far away from, from our shores and from our friends and allies. I am... Um... I thought the caricature of the Trump voter as uh, an, an uninformed dolt was something that existed in the media, not in his own advisors. Do they, do they really say none of our voters know who Lindbergh is? Um, well, you know, I, you know I, I'm not sure that's, that's far off the mark. Um, not only do most Americans not maybe know the history of the America First movement during World War II, even those that do kind of paint on it this simplistic caricature, which is actually not true. It was, um, first of all, it was not a fringe movement. It was actually mainstream well, American that, opinion. Up that's, until, that's, that's what made it scary. <laughs> up, up until Pearl Harbor. And it, it also, it wasn't necessarily isolationist. I mean, their argument was, is that they thought the right strategy for America was essentially defending the, the Western Hemisphere. Now, they were wrong. And I think the great sin of the America First movement is maybe you can make that argument in, say, 1936 or 1937, but by you know 1940, that argument had no credibility whatsoever. So uh, they were wrong. But it was, it, and it was a very diverse, it was kind of like the you know American Tea Parties. It was a very, very diverse movement. So um, using it as a historical analogy uh, to what Trump wants to do, other than saying that when you have a foreign policy, your primary motivating interest for your foreign policy should be your country's vital interest. I think that's about the limits of the historical analogy. Um, now, to move on to that principle put into practice uh, when it comes to foreign policy, um, let me preface this by saying that I'm not an expert on anything, um, which is why I'm fortunate to be sitting across the table from you. Um, but it seems to me that if you want to stop immigration from coming across our southern border, placing tariffs on uh, Mexican imports uh, is something that not only is counterproductive in that it will damage the Mexican economy and perhaps by extension other economies uh, further south, but also is just a, a punishment against American consumers. Is is that sound foreign no, policy? I, no, I would agree with that. Matter of fact, a colleague and my Jack Spencer, who's our domestic economic guy, we put out a policy statement 
uh, on Friday is saying that we thought that tariffs is a bad strategy. We understand the impulse behind the strategy and that the administration is incredibly frustrated that they're not getting the kind of cooperation from Mexico that, that they need. And our, our argument was simply tariffs are the wrong instrument. We understand the impulse. And, and in a sense, we agree that the most important thing is really for the U.S. and Mexican governments to work together because it, that's what's in the best interest of both countries, whether it's our economy, our security, or our freedom, our liberty, or governance. Um, we have to have a strong partnership. And, and there is a Mexican delegation coming to town this week. So hopefully something constructive will come out of that. Um, let's, let's look deeper into immigration policy. Um, you have referred to Donald Trump or, or rather said that he has the, the potential to be the transformational immigration and border security president. What did, what did you mean by that? So I think there, there's two things. And again, you know, since I started in this business working uh, in the homeland security field and that inevitably draws in border security and immigration, I think, which has been increasingly one of the most controversial issues that we've dealt with in decades. And the real bugbear, the real challenge on that has been how do you deal with the people who are unlawfully present with the illegal migration? You know, until relatively recently, there was actually strong consensus for adding security at the border, even though I think both everyone in the debate would acknowledge that just adding security at the border isn't the complete solution. But before, the, the formula was, you know, we all basically agree on about 80% of what needs to be done. And we violently disagree on 20%, including what do you do about amnesty and several other things. And the formula has always been, because this is difficult politically to deal with the 20%, we will hold the 80% hostage and we will do nothing until we all agree on the part, we, the 20% we don't agree on. And we've actually tried to do that like three times, um, whether it was Bush or, the, or, or Obama or the Gang of Eight Bill. And in the end, it just, it just breaks down. And one way, I think, in which Trump has tried to do transformational is to kind of flip the proposition on its head. He goes, look, there's 20 percent we don't agree with. Let's put that off to the side. Let's deal with the 80 percent that most Americans want. And I think the other way in which he is transformational is he has added legal immigration reform to the mix, which we really haven't had a serious discussion about since the mid-90s. And we have not really looked at the structure of our legal immigration system and says, is it right to keep America competitive and which is now a very, very competitive world? The last time we did a major reform was 1965. Your parents had a rotary phone in 1965, right? <laughs> so if you said, would you rather have your iPhone or a rotary phone? You would probably say, well, you know, we should, you know, updating the technology is probably good. Do we really want an immigration system, which is as outmoded as a rotary phone? Isn't part of the 80% though, uh, a path to citizenship for the dreamers? Um, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I don't think that's part of the 80%. I think that's part of the 20%. I think there are a lot of people that would be very supportive of uh, a path to citizenship uh, and legalization for people who were brought here as small children. Um, the problem with that is it, it is another form of amnesty. And what we have historically seen is every time you do an amnesty, it's simply a stronger motivation and draw for illegal immigration. When the DACA program was just announced, we saw a dramatic increase. And, and it's not, you know, people portray this as victimless crimes, and they're not victimless. Bringing children across the border illegally is very dangerous, and it is literally child endangerment. And it's not a practice that we should be uh, popularized. I mean, the other thing is, is look, and, you know, as, as compassionate as people are for people in this category, when you, when you say, when you go to people, and, and, and if you ask people, what are your concerns? Normally, they'll list three of them. Um, I, I, the various orders, but this is generally how it breaks out. Um, one is 
they're concerned about the fiscal burden of illegal immigration. You know, why do I, as a taxpayer, have to bear these burdens? And the, and I think the data is is suggestive that the the value of illegal immigration from labor does not match the burden, the public burden that uh, taxpayers have to put on. The second is fairness. They don't think it's fair that people get to jump the line of other people who come illegally. They don't think it's fair that that people flood the uh, refugee system with meritless claims and keep us from helping out the truly deserving. And and they are concerned about public safety as support or anything else. So having said all that, those are their big concerns. And when you go to them and say, I understand those are your big concerns. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to reward the people that help create the problem. <laughs> that, that doesn't sit well with, with every voter. I hope you understand, though, that when my people hear about uh, restrictions on, on legal immigration, and, and by the way, if I'm reading Carafano right, perhaps when, when your people hear uh, about restrictions on legal immigration, it, it brings us back to dark memories of when those kinds of restrictions were used to keep our own people. Right. Well, you know, of course, we're not talking about restrictions on legal immigration. Matter of fact, the administration well, is... You, you, sorry, yeah. you talked about reforming the, the legal immigration yeah, yeah, process. Yeah, so our legal immigration numbers are actually would stay the same under the president's plan. Um, actually, our, our legal immigration numbers... Uh, have increased in the last two years, hmm. which I think is ironic that people think. I that, didn't know that. That's yeah. So we're actually taking in slightly more efficiently. So we're taking in larger numbers of legal immigrants. So the numbers wouldn't change. What would change is the, the makeup of that. And so the way that works now, because of the way we changed the law in 65 is we shift the emphasis to the migration of extended family members. So nobody's going to say, if you come, you know, don't bring your wife, don't bring your children. But, you know, that your grandparents and, you know, cousins would get priority over other people. Um, people say, well, is that, does that really make sense? So right now, if you add up, some people call that chain migration or extended family migration. Um, we have a visa diversification lottery, which is basically anybody from a country, you don't get a lot of visas, throw your name in a hat, you can come. We give out something like, is it 50,000 a year? 60, 60, 70, mm -hmm. 60, about 65,000. Um, and then status adjustments. You add all up, that's about 90% of the 1 million that come in each year legally, which means about 10% of the people that come in legally are people that are specifically brought in to contribute to the workforce and contribute to the economy. And um, about a dozen countries have shifted to a system that's more merit-based. Uh, their economies have actually done very well under that. And um, if the president's reform was adapted, we would go from 10% that essentially employment-focused to about 60%, that's employment focus. That would make us competitive with countries like um, Canada and Australia. Mm -hmm. um, folks point to uh, other elections around the world and say that that is also an example of kind of Trumpism or, or, or the Trump wave. Things like uh, Brexit, which actually obviously predates Trump, um, or the rise of different uh, far-right parliamentary groups in the European Parliament or, or other uh, legislatures around the world. Um, do you think that that those things are, are positive developments? Well, we, we've also seen a surge in, in far-left populist groups in, in Europe as well. Um, I, I think in the Western world, it's fair to say that there is a, a global movement, in a sense, back to frustration with governance that is increasingly disconnected from the voter. I think that's fair. Um, having said that, beyond that kind of general notion about the that our system is supposed to be responsive to us in contrast to what the Chinese are offering or the Russians are offering. Um, there's there's very little that connects all that stuff together, right? Much like the America First movie that that I talked about, where a lot of people who had been through the experience of World War One um, and saw the immense sacrifices didn't want America to get in a war again. Other than that, there was almost nothing that united that very diverse group of people. 
And I think part of it has to do with technology and the ability to move information around. And because we so proliferate with information, part of it, I think what people are seeing is a frustration with how they're governed and that the notion of a, a disconnected elite telling them what they should and shouldn't do. There's just in the West, and, and when I mean the West, I mean that in the absolute broadest term, there, there's just pushback on that. And it manifests itself in, in many different ways. And I think certainly part of Trump's political success, which is, I think, distinguishable from the way he actually governs, is he, he absolutely tapped into that, as did other leaders. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said recently that the Trump administration was ready to negotiate with Iran with, uh, quote, no preconditions. Um, Do you think that Trump's approach to Iran is one that's likely to pay off? Well, this is actually something, if you look very closely, that is is very consistent element of Trumpian statecraft. And so virtually every major competition that he has, with the exception maybe of ISIS in in Syria, is he offers the other guy an off-ramp. So in every competition, there's an element of, as soon as you guys stop messing with my vital interests and you want to come to the table and work something out, I'm here. And that even includes Iran. He, he said that at the end of his speech when he announced pulling out of the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA. He's repeated it several times since then. And I, and I do believe it's sincere. So there's, there's always an off-ramp in a Trump thing. And, he, and he's always ready to take that if the other side wants that. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily expect that's going to happen in a New York minute. So if you listen to Pompeo very carefully, he said, we're, we're perfectly willing to negotiate without preconditions. He didn't say there weren't conditions for a deal with Iran, because hmm. the United States has laid out about a dozen very, very significant demands, um, which far exceed what was in the Iran deal. But he didn't say a deal would be open to a bunch of you know, but he did say the talks, there were no preconditions. And I believe the administration when they say that. I, I also don't think the administration thinks that the Iranians are going to take them up on that anytime soon. I think from an Iranian perspective, they would much prefer the other side win the next election. And my guess is the Iranians are just right now just trying to wait Trump out. The the hubbub recently about uh, potential military engagement in Iran, you don't give that much credence? No. And funny, I was sitting next to a um, a real, well, let's say like a real Middle East expert. I mean, somebody that's, you know, speak, <laughs> only Middle East. Speak, you know, yeah, he, but he speaks all the languages, you know, and he, you know, all he, of them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, he hangs out in the thing and he drinks coffee out of little cups and stuff. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're sitting at the stern table. He goes, he goes, um, you know, he goes, you think anything's going to happen around? I go, no. He goes, I don't either. <laughs> and I went, yeah. So I, I think we're good on that one. Um, are we ever going to see Jared Kushner's peace plan? Uh, I don't know if we're going to see it anytime soon because of Israeli politics. I, th- I think people really misunderstand the peace plan and misunderstand Jared Kushner's role in the government. But among the president's many unconventional things is, you know, he hasn't appointed a lot of very senior officials across the border and things. And I don't, I don't think he really cares. Um, but is so we've seen this thing where you have very tough, complex problems where the system keeps coming back. So oh, there's nothing we can really do about that. What he tends to do is is who, Jared, who kind of is like a mini me in many ways, he says, look, go look at this. Right. And so Jared will come together and he'll say, look, I'm the common sense guy here. I'm not an expert. Tell me why we can't do this. And, and we'll go through and let's see what's what we might do. And he's done this on several different issues. And uh, and he's worked kind of across the government agencies. Uh, and then he comes back and he says, you know, boss. Here's what I think we can do. And, and he doesn't always get his way. The first time that he went back to the president, for example, on criminal justice reform, the president didn't like the plan at all. And, but, um, so he did this with the peace plan. He's put a peace plan together. And I think that the, 
the underlying presumption or assumption of the U.S. police plan is, is the Palestinian Authority is not a partner for peace. They have no, you know, illusions whatsoever that the Palestinians are going to run to the table. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't value in a peace plan. I think they believe there has to be a transformation in Palestinian governance. And I think they're looking at kind of working both ends of the problem. On one end, defining what is possible for a, for a Palestinian uh, governance that was truly interested in peace. And the other saying, how can we bypass these guys, get to the Palestinian people and begin to promote the reforms from below that will create the kind of pressures that would lead to that. That's a process that might take two years, might take four years, might take six years, might never happen. But I think they're, I think they're playing the long game here. So when the peace plan is dropped, to me, is not the most important element. Um, and, and therefore, I think people are wildly wrong about how they, you know, it's dead on arrival. I think, going back to the immigration, we talked about the immigration plan that President released this immigration plan. First thing that Congress said is, oh, this is dead on arrival. We'll never do this. He, he, didn't, he didn't deliver that plan for them. He said, this is a plan I'm going to run on in 2020. If people elect me, maybe I'll have a Congress that will do with it. So that their immigration plan is clearly designed to be implemented in 2021. Uh, this peace plan, I think, is something that they're going to hold out there over the course of their term and continue to work to create the conditions on the ground that would create the partner for peace that I think Israel needs to, to actually move forward. And, and I don't think in the end whether – I don't think the peace plan is actually – the peace plan is kind of the, the light on the hill. I don't think this administration is actually committed to a single solution, right? That the solution is the solution that Palestinian Israelis agree to as a way forward in peace. You know, whether it's two state or one state or 10 state or whatever, you know, I think in my mind, the, the president says the peace plan is to get the process, give something to motivate the process, not necessarily as it's my way or the highway. It's interesting because I, I would think that the presidents who are the most effective conversation changers, national and, and even international conversation changers, folks like Reagan mm -hmm. uh, or, or FDR, perhaps, that that they would do it in a way that even as they move their own party further to the left or further right. to the right, they succeed in also moving the other party further to the left or further to the right in the same direction. But I have the sense that President Trump, whether because of style or because of substance, sure, he may be moving. It's, it's, a little, it's a little facile to say that he's moving the Republican Party to the right. He's moving the Republican Party in a different place. But I think that he's perhaps moving the Democratic Party in an equal and opposite direction. So he's, he's changing the conversation on one side of the aisle, but the lasting effect of that is only as far as he and perhaps his acolytes in the future can maintain a grip on power. Well, um, I mean, you hit on one thing, which is clearly is there are two aspects of presidential leadership. There is um, rhetoric and action. Uh, and, you know, what we tend to do with Trump is we focus all on the rhetoric and we we ignore what he actually does, right? Um, and, and his rhetorical style is different. And it's not a unifying grand narrative. I, I grant you that. It's it's not Reagan-esque at all. Um, it is genuinely Trump. And, and it also is, I think it's it's a voice for the time. Um, this notion of a, of a national voice that kind of transcends the partisan debate. Um, and although Reagan was actually quite a partisan figure in his day, um, I, th that's, that's just not what's going to move the American people right now. I mean, um, and... It, and I think Trump is more riding that wave as opposed to creating that wave. Uh, I, I actually think what we'll see is post-2020, when we get to 2024, my guess is 
Americans and, and the country is still at peace and the economy is still doing fine. Americans will be anxious for a more quieter, um, unifying voice, but that's not what they want right now. And and that voice is not going to move things politically. So I think Trump's rhetoric is designed to get his policies across the board um, in in a, in a in a very very partisan environment. And and uh, you know think about it. I mean, seventeen Republican candidates who I would argue are actually much more diverse. I mean, we, I forget how many Democratic candidates we have, like twenty eight or something. <laughs> but um, seventeen candidates, and which was a much much more diverse field than Democrats have now. Uh, and really, I did think reflect the broad spectrum of the Republican Party. And then out of that, you know, this very discordant voice with no, you know, track record whatsoever wins out of that. Well, why is that? And it's not because, you know, Trump is a brilliant orator. It's because he he figured out what voice was going to break through to the people that needed to get him elected. It's a great um, story that they were talking about something like uh, um, they were arguing things about Puerto Rico and, and oh, they shouldn't do this. And Trump said, oh, nobody in Puerto Rico is going to vote for me. What does it matter? Yeah, because, I mean, and there's, there's a certain realism there. Is, is he uses his voice in a way that he thinks matters as opposed to makes everybody feel good. James Carafano, thank you for joining us at Global Forum and on AJC Passport. Thank you. Israel is heading back to new elections. To help us understand why and what this all means, we caught up with Avital Leibovich, director of AJC Jerusalem. Avital, thank you for joining us. With pleasure. I've got deja vu because I'm seeing headlines about an election in Israel, but Israel just had an election. What's going on here? Why are Israelis going back to the polls? Well, according to the Israeli law, the uh, president uh, gives the mandate to the leader of the party, which he thinks will be most likely able to form a coalition government. And that was Prime Minister Netanyahu in our case. Uh, he was uh, given the maximum time for this uh, goal, and uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to form a coalition with the uh, majority. Uh, Israel has uh, 120 seats in its parliament, and in order to have a coalition with a majority, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu needed 61 uh, seats. Uh, Lieberman, which uh, seemed at the time uh, as the most uh, logical uh, component uh, partner with this creating of coalition, turned out to be uh, somewhat of more political player uh, than uh, thinking about uh, the party interests and basically decided uh, not to uh, partner with Netanyahu. And therefore, uh, the Knesset uh, took its power and dissolved uh, the uh, current uh, parliament, the Knesset. And this brings us to three months from now. On September 17th, we'll have another election. Right now, we have uh, a temporary government with uh, temporary uh, ministers in different positions, which is quite problematic because uh, they cannot legislate, for example. Uh, there will be no appointments. For example, the uh, national police doesn't have uh, the chief of staff at this point of time. Uh, but I think overall, the parliament uh, doesn't have any... Uh, capability to monitor the government in this transition period. 
So I think of uh, September 17, uh, Israelis will uh, again go to uh, the election, when this will cost the Israeli economy something like 2 billion shekels. So who's in charge in Israel right now? Is is Prime Minister Netanyahu still prime minister, even though he doesn't have a, a government? Like, who's minding the store? Who's making sure the country's safe? So, yeah, we have a transition government, which is uh, more or less uh, the same people who were elected at the previous election. Uh, prime Minister Netanyahu is still the prime minister. So the same parties are there. Um as for security, Netanyahu has the portfolio of uh, the Minister of Defense uh, to himself, and uh, this is actually not different from the last election, which he still had that portfolio. Um, I think that we are more or less fine in, in that section of the security issue, but uh, obviously this is not something healthy in the long run to have such a long time with the transition government. Look, the Israeli economy is strong. Uh, there are no crisis uh, in the horizon uh, except the political one. So the country is in a good shape. But having said all of that, uh, you know, the parliament cannot oversee what the government is doing. And in, in that sense, uh, this is not a good situation to be in. So, will September's election, is it a do-over election, or is it a brand new election that's just very shortly after the one that just happened? So, like, is it the same parties and the same people, and, you know, does the whole kind of chessboard look the same, or or could there be some pretty serious changes? First of all, this is just like any other election, so I would not use the term re-election because it's not a re-election. Um, I do think we will see here some interesting political games because the previous elections are so fresh that uh, the lessons that uh, were supposed to be learned by different parties would now have a practical effect. So I think we will see a lot more political uh, rivalries as well as political partnerships. Uh, even if it means that small parties who barely or did not at all cross the threshold may now want to join uh, forces with other parties. Um, I'm sure that the Likud party, which is Netanyahu's party, the ruling party, will aim for more mandates. Now, when Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post explained the players in April's election to us, she said that it was actually Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit who was the only person standing between Prime Minister Netanyahu and re-election. Uh, what's the status of the Prime Minister's legal troubles? Are, are they going to affect his re-election bid in September? I don't think so. Uh, the, next, uh, the next step for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's legal issues will be a hearing in October. And uh, the process after that, uh, the legal process, is estimated to take between anywhere between uh, two and a half, three years to five years. Now, according to the Israeli law, someone who has not been yet indicted can still serve in his political or public uh, seat or, or role. Uh, and this means that um, if the uh, legal process will end in four or five years from now, then Netanyahu uh, is eligible to continue and serve as prime minister should he be elected uh, again uh, by the president and would be able to uh, uh, to uh, um, 
build uh, the coalition this time. One final question. Yesterday, Labor Party leader Avi Gabay announced that he will not be running for re-election in the party's leadership campaign. So he was leader for April's election. He had been pretty kind of pretty new on the scene for that. And he's not going to be the leader going forward. Uh, that's after the party won only six seats in April's election, which was a, a historic low for the party that ruled the country for the first 30 years of, uh, of the country's existence. What does that mean for the future of the Labour Party? Well, I think that the future is we need to recalculate their roots, and the Labour Party is one of them. Um, look, what happened uh, uh, 40 years ago uh, is different. I mean, the Israeli population today is in a totally different place. Uh, at that time, 40 years ago, the vast majority of the people living here were not Israeli-born. Now, in 2019, only one out of every four Israelis was not born here. And the Labour Party, I think, did not adapt to the current situation. Uh, additionally, they had some uh, internal risks within themselves, in the party, which obviously was very obvious to their voters. Um, and having said all of that, there are new alternatives for the voters, for the people which did not exist before a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. So I think they are now in a process of asking their electorate in, in the coming days who they want to see as the next chair. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how it's turning out. By the way, the other parties also have to recalculate their roots because they actually broke into different parties instead of running this one united uh, list. Another interesting issue to follow will be Bennett and Shaked. Where will they be? Will they still uh, continue to lead the new party they built, which uh, did not uh, cross the threshold? Or will they join other parties? This is also very interesting because they do have uh, a lot of uh, followers and uh, they are interested to continue and remain in the public life. Avital, thank you so much for sharing these keen insights. We'll be watching closely as the battle for Balfour Street continues. Well, we have three more months of a lot of issues that will change rapidly and new parties and old parties and a lot of politics all around. So thank you. <laughs> Take care. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Surveys. Good for the Jews? Since biblical times, the Jewish people have been obsessed with counting ourselves. In fact, synagogues around the world just read one of the biblical censuses last weekend at the beginning of the book of, you guessed it, Numbers. Well, we're still counting today in 2019, and we're not only looking at population, but also at sentiment. There's a link in the show notes. Tap it and head to AJC.org to read AJC's groundbreaking survey of American, French, and Israeli Jewish opinion. This incredible document takes a read of Jewish public opinion in the world's three largest Jewish communities. Some of the numbers are concerning, others are uplifting, but it's important that we know them. Armed with information, we can take action. 
calling on members of Congress and leaders around the world to act. Check it out yourself and see why surveys are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.